Okay, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we'll be in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Matt, and whether you're joining us here in person or you're joining us on the live stream, welcome again to this new series. If you missed last week, we started a series of six questions, and I'm calling this Questioning Christianity because it's fair and it's valid that we don't simply blindly follow Jesus or Scripture, but that we ask important questions of our own faith. Or maybe many of you would say, like, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I don't identify as a Christian, but I do have these questions, and maybe you even think, like, I don't think the Bible has answers, that's why I've gone outside of Scripture. So just to review real quick, whether you were here last week or not, we kind of started at the very beginning, both logically and chronologically, with the question of origin. Like, where did everything come from? And specifically, humankind, where did we come from? How did we get here? And I kind of concluded last week that you can pick which miracle you want to believe because you can believe in the Big Bang followed by hundreds of millions of years of evolution or you can believe that there is a divine creator and creation. In other words, you can choose to believe we are the result of a random, unguided, impersonal process and that's how everything got here or we are the deliberate design of God. And I went through some things, even scientifically last week with you, there's this common phrase now, trust the science, um, which if you know science, that's actually not what you do. You don't trust the science, you test science, because science is open to evaluation and reevaluation. But I would say, like, some of us do believe in science. These are not at odds with faith. So a couple of things I mentioned last week is, like, scientifically, we know that something can't come from nothing. Scientifically, like Newton's first law of physics is that an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted on by an outside object. So what is that outside object? What is that outside force? What caused that? We learned from science there cannot be an infinite regress of chain reactions. Like at some point in a series of chain reactions, there had to have been an initial cause. Like where did that cause come from? Um, we talked about the first law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Second law of thermodynamics. A spontaneous process produces more entropy, 
not complexity and organization. Um, we talked about how our planet of everything we know in the entire rest of the universe seems like it's fine-tuned for life, like the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the exact power of the strong and weak nuclear forces that hold the atom together, but just far enough apart that it can be an atom and function and build everything else like molecules and then biology. We studied all these things. And so many of us believe in the God of the Bible, not contrary to evidence and science, but because of evidence and science, or at least in part because of. And we talked last week about how we all have to acknowledge there are gaps in the story of how we got here. And again, you need to pick which miracle you're going to base your life on. And I encourage all of us to approach, approach these six questions over the next now five weeks with both humility and integrity. And I say humility and integrity to acknowledge where those gaps do exist in our own life's narrative and also to look at our own life's narrative and say, does this correspond to reality and, and does this cohere? Do the six big boxes I'm stacking together with answers about origin and this morning identity and then like purpose and ethics and destiny and all these, do they fit together with each other and tell a cohesive story? So that's kind of a quick review of last week, how we were looking at science. Um, some of us are just like, look, we believe in the biblical account of, of how we got here. There is a creator. He is good. He loves you. And he's powerful. Okay? And so he caused all these things to come forth from himself by speaking and creating. This morning, we come to a second big question, and I think it's the next logical question. After we know, okay, how did I get here, we're starting to think about, and who are we? Or who am I? And this morning, we're going to look at three things, making sense of your nature, making sense of your identity, and making sense of your worth. Okay? So making sense of your nature... And you'll notice in the Psalm 8 text that we read this morning, which is quoted several other places in the Bible, even the psalmist is asking the question, God, what is man? And he's not talking about male versus female or a man versus a boy. He's talking about what is, what is humankind, that you are mindful of us, that, that you pay attention to us and care for us. And as I did last week, I'm going to give you not a hundred different answers to that question as exist in all the worldviews of the world, but three very common ones, beginning with humankind as machine. And I'll mention to you that before the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin, the 1830s, this was probably the most common belief about humankind is we're just a machine. And back then they're thinking more primitively of just like, what, was, what were humans made for? We were made for work. We were made for productivity. You just send men out in the fields. You send the wives home to, to cook and to clean and to raise children. And we're working, 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 working. We're designed for work. We're machines. And we're designed for war. Just send them off and we're expendable because we're just machines. What's interesting is there's a resurgence of this worldview that humankind is essentially a complex machine thanks to modern medicine. And I'll explain the more we study and learn about the human body, or any biology really, but I'm talking about the human body, the more we realize it really is a, a whole interconnected series of incredibly amazing systems and machines. You think about the skeletal structure and 
what your joints do. You think about the function of various organs, like your heart with valves that take something in and then pump something back out and take something in and pump something out, or your lungs that fill and then can press out oxygen as it's reoxygenated in your body. You think about what the kidneys do, what the liver does, what the brain does, and you're like, man, these are incredible, in a sense, machines. And we know that they're, in a sense, machines because as we continue to develop science and medicine, it's really incredible and it's awesome. And I love to study it because we're able to say now, like, okay, bone, like, well, we can't make bone. And actually, we, we can now grow bone from bone. But we have artificial bones and we have artificial joints. And we're like, we can, we can re- reproduce that ball and socket and replace your hip as you age. And that's degenerating. We can replace parts of your spine. Then we get into like, we can, we can literally, keeping someone on life support, we've designed a machine that's essentially your lungs, it's breathing for you. We, we design a pacemaker that we put into your heart that's stimulating with these electrical impulses that have it beat on rhythm and, and so on and so forth. And we're, we're all, the point, all the way to the point of like with kidney dialysis and literally artificial organs that can be planted in your body and they're, they're a machine. And so certain people think if that's just a machine and that's just a machine and that's a machine and that's a machine and they're complex and they're biological machines, but if we can replace these machines with our own machines, then essentially isn't humankind just a collection of systems and machines? And I would submit to you that even if you take the sum of all those parts, that is not the sum total and it's definitely not the fundamental truth about human nature that we're just machines. By the way, if we are a series of complex machines, again, scientifically, you can't answer this question, but it does raise the question, if we're a bunch of machines that work together, who designed those machines? Because you you don't look at an artificial heart, you don't look at a pacemaker, and you don't look at an artificial respirator and, and just think like that may have evolved. I don't know where that came from. It just got here. We know they're a designer of those various systems and machines. So who designed the human body, even if it were a machine? Um, so it leads to something a little bit, I think, maybe more advanced, which is probably the most common belief today, and that is humankind as a highly advanced animal. And this is the logical conclusion if what we said last week, if we are the product of evolution and you believe that, then the conclusion is then we are the most highly advanced animal, at least right now. And the theory is that over hundreds of millions of years of evolution, we have somehow gotten increased complexity and order and development, even though that untended process should have led to entropy. We second law of thermodynamics, but somehow it magically created more complexity and order and all that. And so now we would say Homo sapiens, our species, is the highest species of natural selection so far. And like millions and millions of people believe this, okay? And so they look at our physical bodies, they look at our cognitive abilities, they look at our uh, psychological coping mechanism, they look at our emotions, they even look at our beliefs and the things that we worship and say all of that is simply the product of natural selection. Like the people who believe this and react emotionally these ways tend to reproduce in healthier ways and they extend it, extend it or extrapolate it out over tens of millions of years, we get this highly complex animal. And I will, like, I wanna acknowledge like that, that somewhat makes sense from a genetic standpoint. It's often cited that we are 
99% in common genetically with a chimpanzee. Okay, by the way, every human being on planet Earth, our genetics are within 0.1% distinction. We are 99.9% or more similar or identical genetically to one another. But you know that 0.1% difference accounts for huge differences. Um, it's literally millions of differences across the, the DNA sequence, across the, the base pairs of nucleic acids. There are millions of differences represented by 0.1% difference. Nevertheless, we are 99% genetically similar to chimpanzees. By the way, I, I just had some fun with this. I looked a couple others up. We are 90% similar genetically to a giant tortoise. We are 70% similar genetically to uh, various types of worms. Okay. Can we infer then from the similarities that our nature, that what it means to be human is not that different from insects or turtles? Can we infer that? Can we conclude that? Or are we more than our DNA? That's all I'm asking. I, I think it's a fact that the genome is the language of life, to, to put it that way. So it would make sense that if living material is printed with the genome, it would make sense that we, are, we could be very, very similar because we're, we're just like doing a biological cut and paste from the genome. But is our nature more than simply our genetics? Is there something else? And I mentioned some of these questions last week, but why is it that only humans develop culture? Only humans have an appreciation for like the arts. Only humans develop both written and spoken languages. Only humans covenant together in marriage. Only humans have self-awareness and differentiation. Only humans have the ability to imagine the future. Only humans have a universal need for ethics and values and morals as cultures. And I want you to think about love specifically this morning because the Bible is full of conversation about how love is so central not only to who we are but to who God is. According to this theory that humans are essentially just our DNA, we're the highest advanced animal, do you know what love is? So that, that feeling that you feel and you're like, I'm attracted to this person, I'm drawn to this, there's romance and there's affection and there's sacrifice, and there's covenantal love. Well, according to this theory, you're just dancing to your DNA. And we got an engaged couple over here, and I'm sorry to say, but that love that you feel, you were just pre-programmed with that feeling so you could propagate the species. That's it. That's it. You don't really love each other, right? And you're like, no, I, I do. And we, we can go to a third theory or a third understanding of what, what is at the base of humankind, and this is good news for love, and that is seeing humankind as what Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says. Humankind, the fundamental truth about our nature is that we are image bearers of God. So look at this again, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man, and that's, again, humankind in our image after our likeness, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And there's a very important distinction that happens here that doesn't appear elsewhere in Scripture. Though the rest of the universe, we're specifically told, is meant to display God's glory, God says humanity was meant to display my image. Not just my glory, not just general truths about my power and my greatness and my creativity and my love, but, but something very specific about the image of God. And I would say even if we are 99% genetically related to the chimpanzee, and I don't have reason to doubt that, but the Bible says our fundamental nature is who we are in relation to God. That's our fundamental nature, okay? And theologians and philosophers have debated forever like, what does that mean to be made in the image of God? And I would, I would suggest to you it's not one thing, but it's, it's many of the things I just mentioned. Like, why is it only humans that have an understanding of the future, that have an understanding of moral obligation, that love and covenant together and are committed? Why is it humans, as we read in Genesis 1, that God says, I'm entrusting you, the imago Dei, made in the image of God, to have dominion over the rest of creation, to think about how to order and to invest in and to plant so that this whole thing flourishes because you are my standard bearers. I've given you a responsibility in my universe to care for my world. And as we exercise that dominion, that's part of what it is to be made in the image of God. And Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And I want you to notice um, this, this fits science. We were saying last week that the evolutionary theory is that somehow inorganic matter became organic. Like the, the, the unliving dust somehow became living bios. How did that happen? And science doesn't have an answer to how that happened, the Bible does. It says right here, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became, and it's a living person, a living soul. This isn't just spiritual truth. This is science, okay? One scientist said 96% of our body's mass is made up of four elements, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. The other 4% is made up of sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, iron, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, and iodine. And the Bible's claim is that God can take those elements that are plentiful in creation and fashion them into life. So your fundamental nature is not just like, I'm dust. We do say that at Ash Wednesday, right? From the dust you are taken and to the dust you shall return. And we understand that on a biological level that there's a very real sense in which scientifically we're taken from the ground and when we die, we, our body, that first body returns to the ground. But I love this picture in Genesis 2 where it's basically like God is now an artist. And he's like taking this lump of clay from the ground, as it were, and he's, he's fashioning it, he's modeling it, but there's an intentionality. It's not just that eventually we came along in this long stream of an impersonal process. It's like God put his hands in the dirt and he's fashioning and forming these raw materials. And, and then this this first man is, is done, but is he alive? And the Bible's answer is no, because you're more than just the dust. 
And what is that man waiting on? According to Genesis 2, he's waiting on the breath of life. And I think that's an interesting distinction because the animals didn't get the breath of life. The mammals didn't get the breath of life. You go back to Genesis 1, it's just God, God speaks, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, and it was so. There they are, the living creatures. But God himself fashions homo sapiens. It's done in a sense, but it's not its fundamental nature yet until he breathes in it, into it this breath of life. And what this tells us is that humanity has both material and immaterial parts. Okay? You, you are not just a brain that can be studied by science. You are a mind. You are not just a heart that can be studied by science and pumps blood around your body. You are also affections. You are not just a body. You're a soul and you have a will. You are not just your DNA. You bear the image of God and you hold the breath of God. So that's what the Bible says is true of your nature. Now, number two, let's make sense of our identity. Identity is different than nature. They may overlap some, but if nature is like, this is who you are, I want you to think of identity as this is your sense of who you are. Or we could even add your, your sense of self-worth. So an identity is more like who or what makes you feel unique or important. An identity is, is, is the who or what that you look to to feel like I know I'm a success if certain things are true or if certain people are validating me or recognizing me. So that's another way to think of your identity. It's your source of recognition, your source of affirmation, your source of validation. And I want to just real quickly overview the three dominant identities that our culture lives out of. And they're these. There is a traditional identity. There is a modern or progressive identity. And there is a gospel identity that we get from the Word of God. And I'll just compare and contrast these briefly for you so you kind of understand. And I want you to be thinking, like, where do I fit? Okay, if there's this traditional, this more modern and then this gospel identity, where do I instinctively fall into thinking about myself and my self-worth? Okay, so let's start with that, your sense of self. Well, the traditional culture would say your sense of self is either discovered or it's inherited. Okay, so the way this works is you grow up in a traditional culture and you're like, well, who am I? And they say, well, you're a little girl, so that means you do things like this. And you fill roles like this, and your responsibilities look like this. You're a little boy, so you do things like this. And, you know, in a traditional culture, those can be very different, like a traditional division of labor. And we're like, okay, I'm discovering who I am. I'm inheriting who I am from my parents, from my culture, from my society that kind of tell me because you're a boy, because you're a girl, now you're a man, now you're a woman. These are the kinds of things that you do to get your significance. In a modern culture, your sense of self is not discovered outside of you. It's certainly not inherited. The whole idea is you decide or you create your own identity. You know, you can be anything you want to be. And it's less about these traditional roles and more like, who do you want to be? Who do you identify as? Like, you, you got you to gotta create that and then go live your truth. That's the idea. 
Next, where do each of these cultures get their standards, their values, kind of their, their morals or ethics? Well, again, if you're from a traditional culture, you look externally to yourself, you look outward, and you say, what does society say right and wrong are? What does my family, what do my authorities say right and wrong are? In a modern culture or a modern identity, you're not looking out there and saying, what does society in general say is true or is valuable? You look internally, you look in. And you say, what is valuable to me? What is important to me? What do I believe is right? What do I believe is wrong? And again, I'm not critiquing this yet. I'm just telling you, I'm just kind of differentiating these two identities for us, okay? The highest good. What is the highest good in a traditional identity? The highest good is honor. It is do the right thing. It is you, you have these written and you have these oral instructions from the people that are your authority. You have it from society. Now, the, the honorable thing to do is to be a good obeyer of the rules, like play by society's rules. The highest good in a modern identity is almost the complete opposite, is this idea of expressive individualism. It is like, again, like you do you. You don't do the right thing as determined by culture, you do your thing. It's like, that's what we celebrate. That's what we value is each one of you, just your individuality, your autonomy, like you do you, way to go. And we're supposed to just validate you for, for being uniquely you. What are each of these identities driven by? I would say a, a traditional identity is driven by duty, a sense of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I perform my duty, I follow the rules, I do the right thing. The progressive or modern identity is driven by desire. What do I want? What do I desire? What are my impulses that I should act on because they're my impulses and desires? Now I want to use this term decisive validator. It comes from Tim Keller, I believe, is the originator of this term. But here's the idea. As you're walking through life and you have some identity or some mix of identities, the idea of validation is someone comes along and affirms you. Like, way to go. Good job. We're proud of you. You hear things like that. So in the massive culture, as different people are like, you're bad, you're wrong, you're good, you're right, way to go. Stop doing that. You hear all these cacophony of voices. For every single one of you, there are people that are for you and what you're doing, and the way you're thinking, and there are people that are against you. The idea of a decisive validator is who is the voice that you're like, if, if this person or this group says I'm doing okay, I know I'm doing okay. And in a traditional culture, that decisive validator would be society, particularly the authorities of that society. It's like I'm, I'm performing my duties as a little boy and I'm learning to chop wood and build a fire and I'm learning to hunt. And, and dad and the tribesmen are like, you're doing really good. You're really brave. You built a good fire. Okay. Then you're like, I'm good. Does that make sense? And in a, in a modern culture, you're not looking so much out there, although this is a surprise that even as they say they're not looking for external validation, they really are. But what they're trying to do is say, I just validate myself. And if the whole world is against me, the voice I'm listening to is me. And if I like me, then doggone it, I'm successful. And that's a modern identity. 
And so kind of bottom line, the success in a traditional identity is what you achieve. Here's the rules. Here are the benchmarks. How are you doing at achieving those benchmarks and performing your role and doing your duty and getting the honor in a modern culture and in a modern identity? It's not what you achieve. It's what you conceive. Like, what can I think up? And I think there's an enormous pressure on our young people to just like be thinking of something amazing to do with their life, right? This enormous pressure of like, what am I going to do? Am I going to be like an engineer or like work for NASA or like invent some incredible thing or be some incredible artist? Or am I just, you fill in the blank. So what you achieve, what you conceive If you ever want to see the modern identity clashing with the traditional identity, just watch any Disney movie written in the last 30 years. And I'm I'm like, I'm not joking about that. It's it's the greatest manifestation of like, there's this clash because you got Moana, right, on the island. And she's like, everyone else seems to be fine just doing their role on the island. And like, what's wrong with me? Because I don't want to just be a traditional girl. I want to do other things. Again, I'm not critiquing that. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying she's pushing against that traditional identity and saying, I have a modern identity. I want to do some of the stuff that the men are doing. I enjoy stuff like that. Maybe that's okay, but that's who I am. Obviously, the greatest ever of this is Elsa from Frozen, right? And I'll just read you these incredibly well-written lyrics. Don't let them in. Don't let them see Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. And what is that so far? That's traditional identity. Be the good girl you always have to be. You're the princess, you're living in the palace, everyone's eyes are on you, you have a role, you have a benchmark, you've got rules. And if mommy and daddy are okay with how you're behaving, then everyone's gonna be good with you and they'll validate you. And she's like, well, I can't let them know what I'm actually going through, that I'm a like, spicy frozen ice princess. And, and she's like, well, now they know, you know, cat's out of the bag, cause zap, I'm amazing, you know? And, So she goes on and she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. She's free to what? She's free to shift over to this modern identity to say, I will express myself. No right, no wrong, no rules. That was traditional. I'm modern. And then she goes and ruins her life and her traditional sister has to come rescue her. But that's beside the point. So that's Elsa. But, but you see, I'm just trying to help you understand these, these different identities and how they clash and how they battle and how in one setting you may find yourself with a more traditional identity and then you shift settings and you're around a different group of friends and you're like, yes, expressive individualism. I am free. One of the biggest areas that we see this at play, and this is a little bit more serious than Disney now, but where we see this in play in our culture today is around the issues of like gender and sexuality that again, I'm not, I'm not critiquing this for the moment, but just saying like we have this battle of like, am I who science says I am? Like there's an anatomy, there's a physiology, there's literally every single cell of my body is imprinted with XX or XY. Am I that? Am I who society says I am? Am I who I say I am? 
And there's a battle because certain people say traditional identity, that's who you are. Other people say modern identity, that's who you are. And these two sides are just talking past each other in one of the biggest areas of contention in our culture. And before I mention just a few words about gospel identity, I want to give you this diagnostic. This is from David Lomas in his book, The Truest Thing About You. The idea is there are lots and lots and lots of things that are true about you, and they're true about your identity. We have all these layers of identity. You, know, you are an ethnicity. You are a color, right? You're male or female. You are a barista or a scientist or a lawyer or a student. I mean, there, there are all these different layers of our personality and our identity. And Loma says, here's the truest thing about you. God made you. God loves you. God sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. And he provides this diagnostic. He says, what identity in your life currently provides the most powerful dose of self-worth? So out of all those layers of things that are true, which of them currently provides the most powerful dose of self-worth? You're like, I know I'm someone because, and some of you are still more traditional. I'm not, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just, it just is. And you're like, I like it when my boss validates me. I still like it when a parent validates me. That feels good. That feels right. It feels like I'm doing the right thing. I know I'm a someone. Many of you are, are, are over here in this more modern of just like, I made a decision. and I'm, I'm going somewhere and doing things that no one in my family history has ever done. And it's just me and I'm expressing that and I'm going for it. And I feel so good about myself. So it's a self-diagnostic. Where, where are you getting that? endorphin hit of like, I know I'm someone because of what? And let's talk for a few moments about gospel identity. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And I chose those verses because it is, it's fascinating that regardless of what identity you are living out of, and for many of you, you are going back and forth between modern and traditional and modern and traditional, but culture is saying to you, find yourself or fashion yourself and express yourself. And Jesus is like, die to yourself. Lose yourself. And what I want you to notice is, is Jesus is not like, I'm sick and tired of this modern identity and its expression of individualism. Y'all need to be traditional. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that this brother got it right and this brother got it wrong. He's like, both of you, all of you, what do you do with that identity that's either discovered or just inherited or you're trying to create it on your own, you're stressed? He says, deny yourself. He says, lose your life. And this is interesting and it's important. When he says, lose your life or you will lose your life, he's not saying lose your like bios, like your, your physical life. He's saying, lose your psyche, your psyche. We say in modern psychological terms, he's saying, lose your self or your self-made identity. He's saying, 
the, the more you cling to that self-made identity or that culturally mandated identity, instead of letting it go and releasing it and dying to it, he says that self that you hang on to, that you cling to, and you're like, I'm going to express myself or I'm going to be the very best at all the things and get the validation from those people. He's like, either way, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose yourself because you are so desperate either to affirm yourself or to be affirmed by culture that you're not really finding the, the depth of who you really are in me. And so there's this call to walk away from that disintegration, that long, slow burn, and just walk into the grace of Jesus. He says, follow me. With his gospel identity, your sense of self is not coming from society and it's not coming from just you. This sense of this is who I am, that's found in Christ. This is who God says I am. This is who his word says I am. I rely on it because this is the word of God. It's true. I believe it. I embrace at my core that my sense of self is not just found in me deciding for myself. And it's not just found in the best accumulated truths of culture over lots and lots of years. And we go on to like the standards, values, morals level. And we're like, I don't just let the predominant cultural view tell me what to do. And I don't just tell myself what to do. God's word tells me what to do. God's word tells me what to believe. What is my highest good? It's not duty and it's not desire. It is just faithfully living out of the reality of this new person that God says I am. And I'll fall down. I won't do that perfectly. You won't do that perfectly. But the highest good is just faithfully living out of my new identity as an adopted son or daughter of the most high God. What am I driven by with this gospel identity? I'm driven by gratitude. I'm driven by love. It's no longer duty, duty, duty. I've got to perform for God or else he's not going to like me. It's like, well, he, he already loves you. And it's not just desire. It's what I want. It's what I want. It's what I want. It's like, I don't need what I want. I'm, I'm loved by God. I treasure God. And now out of gratitude, out of love and affection for what he's done for me, for who he's made me, now I'm living my life not duty-bound, not, not wrapped up in my own desires and lusts, but I'm, I'm free to live a life of gratitude. Who is my decisive validator, to use that term again? Who's the one voice in the cacophony of voices I have to hear saying, well done? It's not society in general, and it's not me. It's God. Aren't there times where society's like, you've gotten it all wrong. You're, you're bonkers. You're off. You're, you're this or that. And they like hurl insults at you. And there are times where you certainly would look at yourself and be like, I'm miserable. I'm awful. I'm a terrible person. There's all this negative self-talk. And fine. My decisive validator is God. And he's like, well done. Way to continue to repent when you fall down and to ask forgiveness and to press forward in trust. Success now in this gospel identity. Listen, it's not what you achieve. It's not what you conceive. It's what you receive. This gospel identity is a grace gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't repay it. It is something we receive as the kindness of God. So to put it differently, identity is now not found outward, like the traditional. It's not found inward, 
like the modern, it's found upward. Who am I in relation to God? Because I was designed from the beginning for relationship with God. All right, so we've made sense of our nature. We've made sense of our identity. Now, like very quickly in closing, making sense of our worth. This kind of answers the question, how do I know I have value? Do, do I have intrinsic value? And this is a struggle. If you, if you think I, I'm just a machine or a collection of machines or I just like evolved from lower life forms and here I am, just some happy accident, I'd say, like, what's your value? What's your worth? And what's interesting is to see people that hold this worldview saying the unborn life matters or black lives matter or our unhoused neighbors, their lives matter. And um, not sarcastically, but I'm like, why? Why, why, why do they matter? If we've evolved from lower life forms and we're just like the next accidental development of evolution, why do they matter? Let me give you four things here in closing that say your life actually does matter. It matters incredibly. And followers of Jesus, of all people, should be this community, this tribe, this family that says your life matters and your life matters and your life matters. And if, if you're oppressed and you're marginalized, you have nothing, your life matters because, okay, here we go. Number one, our value is connected to our source. It's connected to where you came from. Marty and I have been to, to Napa a few times, like this big wine growing region. And sometimes you're just like walking through a store looking for like cheese and charcuterie or something. And you're like, Wow, why is that bottle of wine like $2,438? And they're like, well, because it came from this particular quarter acre on this particular farm of this particular appellation with this volcanic soil. And then it was like masterfully blended by this particular vintner and therefore its value. And I was like, and why is that one $7? Well, that's just red stuff from all over. Well, your source matters, okay? If we came from a blind, impersonal process, what does that say about our worth? You can say, well, I just, I just believe that. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad because then we'll treat each other better. But what does that say about your worth? Versus if we are the direct, deliberate, designed artistry of a loving and all-powerful God, what does that say about your worth? Your source matters, Number two, our values connected to our nature and identity. Why don't we put granite in engagement rings and pave our streets with diamonds? I mean, there are many reasons. That's scarcity, beauty. You look at the nature of something, you look at the identity of something, and you say, what, what does that say about the worth, the value of that thing? And again, if we're just machines or animals, what does that say about our worth? I mean, if that is the fundamental thing, if the only thing that differentiates us from other animals like a chimpanzee is just like we're just the next lucky accident beyond them, then what's your worth? But if you're fashioned in the image of God, if you're crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over creation, as Psalm 8 says, made just, just a little lower for the angels for now, but then you read the end of the story and we shoot ahead of them from what I understand. Imaging forth our creator. What does that say about your worth? If that is our fundamental nature, that we're not just who society says we are, we're not just who we say we are, but we are who God in Christ says we are. What does that say about your worth? 
Number three, our value is connected to our cost. This goes beyond science, but intentionally so. What is someone who knows your worth willing to pay for you? And what I mean is, we've all failed to live up to our fundamental nature. We've all failed to live up to our fundamental identity in Christ. The Bible says that failure forfeits life because we're, we're walking away from what we are meant to be connected to. And we're like, I can do my life on my own. Or I can cut my branch off from the living God and I can go over here and just implant myself in this subculture and I'll be fine. Well, you won't be fine. We need God to live, okay? So what happens when we disobey, when we sin, when we treasure other things more than God and we forfeit life? Well, the Bible says, and this is, this is the good news. He says, like, when, when you forfeited life, I sent my son Jesus to take on flesh and blood and to, to take your sin, to take your failures, to take your shortcomings on himself and to literally die to pay for those so that he can credit you with his obedience and his righteousness and his holiness and so that God now in Christ only views you as righteous. That's what the word justified means. He views you as clean. Okay? So what, what did it cost God to redeem you when you'd gone astray, when you were broken? What did it cost God? It cost him his own life. Now imagine that. Like, an impersonal process is not going to give its life for you. But the biblical narrative is that the God who made you, when you went astray from him, he didn't be like, well, sorry, peace out. He went after you like the hound of heaven, chasing you down, paying the cost of his own life. That's how we know we have worth. And then finally, our value is connected to our immortality. Um, the evolutionary story, I'll get into this more in the coming weeks, but if you came from nowhere meaningful and you're going nowhere meaningful and you're this little blip of time in between, what is the worth of your life? It's like this. Marty's dad has a place up in Grand Lake. There's this horrible season in the middle of the summer, kind of late summer, where all these caddisflies are hatching. So the, the flies have like laid their eggs on the bottom of the lake and they're hatching, and these little nymphs are like wriggling up to the surface of the water. If they survive that perilous trip of 8 or 12 or 15 feet to the surface of the water, it's likely that a trout will come along and eat them while they're, while they're doing what? Well, they, they get to the surface of the water, and their, their wings emerge, and then they start making a ruckus on the surface of the water, drying out their wings enough to lift off and go live their happy life and mate and breed and do all the wonderful things that caddisflies do. Okay, most of them don't make it to the surface of the lake. The ones that do get eaten off the surface of the lake. And then you still see clouds and clouds of these things flying around the lights at night. And in the morning, there's a pile of dead carcasses on the ground. Now, we, we can extend that out 50, 60, 80 years. But you look at it and you're like, what, what is the worth of a caddisfly? You didn't even make it to the surface, 90% of you. You're just food for something else. That's your worth. Congratulations. Family, what if you're not just a collection of atoms that lives briefly and then passes into oblivion, but, 
because you're made in the image of God, part of that image is immortality. Like you will live somewhere forever. What does that say about your worth? Now we were here the other night and I wish all of you could have been here because we were celebrating um, university prep one block up the street doing amazing work with inner city kids K through five, I believe. They have been a school for enough years that their first class right now is graduating from high school and going on to colleges. And um, they, are, they are more than three times the national average for their demographics at sending kids to college. Okay? So they had all these testimonies and stories up here of like kids that like no one believed in them. And then someone's like, you have worth, you have value. I will stay after school and mentor you every day for the entire semester to invest in you because I believe in you and you have worth. And if no one else cares, I care. And, and I'm looking at this and I'm like just literally thinking, one, this is amazing. But I'm like, if you believe, Christian, that you are designed by a creator, imprinted with his nature, and you're finding your identity in the gospel and not in just society or in self, should Christians not be the most outspoken, the most invested in our neighbors, especially the marginalized ones that no one seems to care about? Because we're like, I know your worth. I believe your worth. When we come to this question of identity, I know your origin and I know your identity. And it doesn't matter what you look like. We're 99.9% .9 genetically overlapped, but that's not your fundamental nature. Your fundamental nature is that you bear the image of God. You matter and you will live somewhere forever. And we're gonna be a community of people that invest in you no matter what you look like, no matter what's in your background, because your identity, your nature, you matter to God and therefore you matter to us. So go invest in someone this week, not just yourself, not just your story, your narrative, but look around. And who needs that encouragement of like, you are who God says you are. Because we are most fully human and we are most like Jesus Christ when we live out of the reality of the nature and identity that we received from God as a gift. Let's help each other live out of the reality of that nature and identity. Let's help each other understand our worth, not just to God, but to us.